I invite you to take your copy of God's Word, if you have it there with you, and turn to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 17. Jeremiah. We will begin reading in verse 9 of chapter 17 of Jeremiah, and we will read through the end of the chapter, and yes, we are going to actually tackle all of that in one service. It could have been three. I've decided to make it one message. So you might be here till two, but... We'll get through it. No, we won't be here that long. Okay, Jeremiah chapter 17, we'll begin reading in verse 9. Follow along with me in your copy of God's Word. I'll be reading out of the New King James Version, as is my custom. It says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. As a partridge that broods but does not hatch, so is he who gets riches but not by right. It will leave him in the midst of his days, and at his end he will be a fool. A glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the dust." Because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. Indeed, they say to me, where is the word of the Lord? Let it come now. As for me, I have not hurried away from being a shepherd who follows you, nor have I desired the woeful day. You know what came out of my lips. It was right there before you. Do not be a terror to me. You are my hope in the day of doom. Let them be ashamed who persecute me, who do not let me be, let, but do not let me be put to shame. Let them be dismayed, but do not let me be dismayed. Bring on them the day of doom and destroy them with double destruction. Thus the Lord said to me, go and stand in the gate of the children of the people by which the kings of Judah come in and by which they go out and in all the gates of Jerusalem and say to them, hear the word of the Lord. You kings of Judah and all Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem who enter by these gates. Thus says the Lord, take heed to yourselves and bear no burden on the Sabbath day, nor bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem, nor carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath day, nor do any work but hallow the Sabbath day as I commanded your fathers. But they did not. Obey, nor incline their ear, but made their neck stiff, and that they might not hear, nor receive instruction. And it shall be, if you heed me carefully, says the Lord, to bring no burden through the gates of this city on the Sabbath day, but hallow the Sabbath day, to do no work in it, then shall enter the gates of this city kings and princes, sitting on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their princes, accompanied by the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and this city shall remain forever." They shall come from the cities of Judah and from the places around Jerusalem, from the land of Benjamin and from the lowland, from the mountains and from the south, bringing burnt offerings and sacrifices, grain offerings and incense, bringing sacrifices of praise to the house of the Lord. But if you will not heed me to hallow the Sabbath day, such as not carrying a burden when entering the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in its gates. And it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem, and it shall not be quenched. As we shared last week, we are into a section of Jeremiah that is considered a portion of wisdom literature that is comparable to like Proverbs and Job and Psalms. Uh, It is set in the midst of a prophetic statement, and we're going to see it extend into some prophecy uh, back into its prophetic um, genre type of literature this morning as we head to the end of chapter 17. And just a quick reminder from last week, when we looked at the contrast between two people, those men who trust in men who are under the curse of God because they trust in man and in man's uh, perspective and beliefs and in man's opinions and uh, man's ways. That in that condition, it compares you to a shrub out in the desert that doesn't benefit from uh, anything that uh, happens, though it be nearby, uh, that is just struggling to survive from one season to another, 
And in contrast, those who trust in the Lord, whose hope is not in the things of man, the things of this world, or the ways of man, but are trusting in the Lord himself and in all that he provides. And he is compared in that portion of scripture with a tree planted by the waters that has uh, ample supply uh, during all trouble, during any kind of opposition, any kind of hardship. Its leaf will be green, it will be yielding fruit, it is not anxious for anything. And this God describes as those who are trusting in the Lord. And we come now into a portion of scripture that really begins to help us understand the distinction between these and why it is so easy for us to get caught into the first of being a shrub in the desert instead of a tree by the river um, that could benefit from things happening well upstream. Uh, what is it that is that prevents us from trusting in the Lord, from being of that number, rather than being uh, constantly coming back to trusting in man? Uh, and whether that man is a priest, um, which is what Jeremiah is dealing with quite a bit, whether he is a man who claims to have access to the truth, whether it be a king, whether it be a, a even a false prophet. Uh, why are you trusting in man when you should be trusting in the Lord? And again, we looked at the necessity of being in God's word, that we know what we are to be trusting in, uh, and be there ourselves with the Holy Spirit within us in the midst of that. And so this morning we are going to press on into this passage. We're going to look, as I said, into why we focus and tend toward leaning on men's wisdom, which is not wise at all, and abandon the wisdom of God in which there is life. And then we're going to look at one example of that at work in Israel in the day of Jeremiah. And we're going to see again the uh, unfortunate theme of this book, and that is given every opportunity to repent, to turn ourselves around and to go in the direction that God wants us to go, we will instead insist upon going in our own direction. And remember, when you trust in yourself, you are trusting in man. All right, and so we talk about trusting in false prophets and priests, trusting in in bankers and trusting in military people that Jeremiah saw the kings trusting and trusting in kings and politicians. And we often talk about trusting in men as other men. But if you trust in yourself, you are also trusting in man. And so when we talk about trusting the Lord, we are going to see um, the necessity of recognizing our own condition and not just blaming our environment. Before we do that, let's go, Lord, in prayer and uh, ask for his help in this endeavor. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the opportunity to look into your word this morning. And as always, we pray that your spirit might have control during this time, that you might help uh, to illuminate our hearts and minds to your truth, that we might uh, understand it, and uh, that you might also go beyond that and convict us of where we fail to uh, allow the authority of your word to penetrate our lives and to change us, to transform us in the image of your Son. And Lord, we also pray you might guard this time from error and from opinion and from uh, falsehood, from the philosophies of this world, from uh, its manness, centeredness. And Lord, we pray that you might help us to uh, focus on your truth, on your person, on your work, that we might be moved today to trust in you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And again, Lord, we Uh, know that you have promised that those who ask of you, that you will freely give wisdom. And so we pray for that wisdom of your word, by your spirit, to your glory, and to our benefit. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, we come to verse 9, and we've already referenced verse 9 at least three times, three weeks in a row, and so you are pretty pretty familiar with it. Verse 9 of chapter 17, which is, by the way, a verse I had to memorize very young, um, in my youth growing up, and I think we've had our children memorize it in the past in our World Life Clubs. And Jeremiah seventeen nine declares, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And we have before us the real issue, the real problem. And of course, this is an issue that Jeremiah has addressed already. 
He is going to continue to address it. And so you've already heard me uh, reference this again and again. But here we have opportunity to spend a little time in it and really to tear it apart and to see its application, uh, not only to Jeremiah's time, but to us. And I want to begin by, by maybe taking the translation and working it a little bit. To uh, And if you have some of the modern translations, they've already done this to some degree. Uh, but uh, we want to look at one phrase particularly. Yes, it is obviously talking about the heart. And we're going to see two organs of the body we're going to be addressing here. When we get down to verse 10, it calls upon us to uh, that the Lord searches the heart and tests the mind. And we're going to, that's really uh, two organs that he's talking about. Uh, and uh, we're going to, probably not what you're thinking. And uh, again, some of this is a lot of figurative language, and we have a difficult time sometimes bringing it into English. Uh, and uh, so the interpreters and the translators have done uh, a job for us, and we want to maybe work on give us a fuller meaning, understanding of these verses. It says, The heart is deceitful above all, um, and desperately wicked. And the term desperately wicked is really a matter of being uh, ill, of being diseased. That it is, uh, and this goes back to where we started at the beginning of this chapter, talking about how the heart was etched with sin. That our hearts are not neutral, that we aren't morally, uh, can go one way or the other, depending upon how you're raised. That isn't the truth. The truth is that our heart is etched with sin. That is, that it has a disease upon it. A disease that is not able to be fixed by medicines of this world, by man's wisdom. And this is why you can't trust in man. They can't fix the problem. Uh, literally, in some translations, it will say incurably ill. It is incurably sick that our heart has a disease upon it that no man can fix. No man can, can resolve this issue. And that's why to trust in man is foolishness, because he can't help you. It is We have no nothing but placebos, and that's all men offer. A placebo is just a sugar pill that a doctor gives you because he thinks your disease is in your mind. And really that's all that we have to offer. We offer something that we call medicine for the heart, and it isn't. It's just a sugar pill to make you believe that you've addressed the issues of the heart, but you haven't. And so this incurable disease that men try to correct or help us believe they are correcting by all of their ridiculous mechanisms, some of those are very religious mechanisms, but they are still man's. They are not God's solution. And so we come to the New Testament and we find again and again this reference where Christ talks about the impossibility of people getting saved. It's just not possible. And the, and the disciples throw up their head, well, who could be saved? And God's, Jesus says, no one, um, as far as men are concerned. And then he makes the wonderful declaration that makes you go, oh, phew, what a relief. And he says, with God, all things are possible. You see, God is the one who can do the impossible. So when we say that it is impossible for men to be saved, we are saying it is a God thing that must be done and not a man thing. And so we come to this passage about who are you going to trust in? Are you going to trust in man? Well, you're under a curse. The curse is your own sin, your own heart's condition that's incurable by man. It's impossible. And so we use that word despair in this verse, this desperateness, um, that, that we have a condition of the heart that is deceitful even to ourselves. That there is all, everything thrown at it, every attempt to overcome it will fail when it is done by man. And because of this, the author, when we get down to verse 14, has a prayer. And I want to start linking verses together of why this wisdom portion is tied into what's coming later. And so rather than doing it in the order it is given, I'm going to try to link the themes together. In the Hebrew uh, writing, um, they're, they have, they're very patterned. And 
Uh, so they'll do A, B, B, A, and so they, and A, B, A, B. So I learned all those patterns in seminary. Aren't you glad for that? So I, I understand Hebrew poetry patterns, um, but a lot of times they're not very helpful for us because we have very short-term memory loss. And so you'll forget verse 9 by the time we get to verse 14. So I'm going to help you by connecting the themes. Okay, so the theme is your heart has a sin problem. We, we, we were introduced to it in the first few verses where it talks about that the tablet of their heart has been engraved with sin with a diamond edge. It has been cut in there and cannot be removed by man. It is an illness that is incurable, it is a disease upon you. And so, how should we respond? Well, we can go to man and say, oh, you know, I need these drugs to help me feel better um, because I'm depressed. I, you can go and say, well, I'm going to go find purpose in this or in that, and he's going to address some of those here in this passage as well. Um, and we have a great wisdom portion of Scripture called Ecclesiastes where the wisest man on earth, Solomon, investigates all those different avenues of man to deal with this condition of the heart, and they all fail. And so Jeremiah leads us very quickly to the right solution. And that is in verse 14. What is the right solution to this condition that is unhealable of the heart? It is etched there with a diamond point in our stony hearts. Verse 14 says, Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. This is the answer. The dilemma, why do we keep going to man's ways? Why do we keep going there? Well, because your heart is conditioned to do that. It has a disease that keeps sending you in that direction. And God stands as the physician, the one who can heal that. And he calls you to it. And it has to begin by recognizing, okay, my heart, which by the way, that organ in Hebrew mentality and Hebrew association is the place of your will. Where you make your choices is in your heart. And so they're really talking not about this organ pumping blood. And they're not really talking about your feelings. We think, you know, I heart you. Um, and, and we often associate that with feelings. Um, but love isn't a feeling. So it's a choice. Uh, and so here is, a, is your center of your will. Why do you keep choosing to go this direction, though you have every reason, if you will give it some thought, to go after the Lord? He is the Almighty One. We have sung about that this morning. He has the power to do over this. He has the power over the land, the sea, and the air. I had you sing about that. Um, he has the power over that, and he has the capacity to heal. And so Jeremiah says, well, I'm not going to be like everyone else. I'm going to pray, Lord, heal me. They're all going after man's way. That's their problem. They're going to get it for that. They're going to have the doom that's going to come upon them for it. But I have, on a personal level, the opportunity to go counter to all of my culture. My entire culture has gone haywire. And, and from Jeremiah's perspective, that's his own family members. Remember, he's of a priestly family. Um, his father, his brothers, his uncles are all going to be in the temple serving here pretty soon when he's going to be called to go to the gate and yell some things here by the end of, before the end of the chapter. Those are his family members that he's dealing with. And he says, they've all got haywire. They all trust in man. What kind of ridiculousness is that? I'm not going to do that. I, am on a personal level, can be a different than the masses. I can stand apart. And I can recognize I have a heart problem just like everyone else. I am no different. What is the difference? Well, I see that there is only one solution that works, and it is God's. And so I'm going to pray to God. Lord, you heal me. Wow. You fix in me what is unfixable. My heart, like everyone else's heart, is etched with a diamond point with sin in, in rock. It is incurable disease that no man can resolve. 
And so I come to you and I ask you to heal me. He's not talking about physical healing here. He's talking about spiritual healing. Heal my heart. Save me. Because there's no salvation anywhere else that works. Save me. And if you do it, then it's done. If you save me, I will be saved. There is no doubt about it. Once you trust in the Lord, it's done. It's finished. He is faithful to accomplish what he has promised to do. The, the, the conditional aspect of this, of whether it happens to you or not, whether you get saved or not saved, um, is up to you. But once you meet the condition of saying, I'm going to trust in the Lord, the Lord can do it. And he will. And that's why he says, heal me and I'll be healed. Save me and I'll be saved. It's a, once you do it, once I allow you to do it, it's done. There's no question. There's no doubt. There's no wondering, well, I wonder if that worked. I guess I'll have to wait to die and find out. No, you don't have to. Because the one you're trusting in is faithful and good and true. And so the condition of the heart that keeps taking us back to choosing to trust in men instead of trusting in God in so many areas of our life is really can only be resolved with this prayer, heal me, O Lord, and I'll be healed. And this is trust. This is what it means to trust in the Lord who have a hope in God. Save me and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. I will not praise myself. I will not praise other men. I won't sit there and recount. And I I have several friends growing up that I admire and appreciate. But one of the things that always bothered me about their their testimony is they always had to tell you who it was that led them to the Lord and who it was that baptized them. Well, it doesn't really matter. Right? Ultimately, whether you were baptized by some famous person or some infamous person, <laughs> no, that's going to be good, um, by some nobody, it's not about who performed the act, it's about who the act points to, and that is the Lord. And so it isn't about whose ministry you were saved under, I was saved, and you throw these names around like they matter. The names of men don't matter, it's the name of the Lord that matters. I trusted in the Lord. And so here he says, I'm going to give praise to you because when I ask you to heal, you heal. When I ask you to save me, you save me. And you can deal with this condition of my heart that is incurable by man, so why should I trust in man? They can't fix it. So I go to the one who can do the impossible. I go to God. And I say, Lord, I have this same problem that every other man has. Every other human has this problem. Um, and they're trying to deal with it in their own silly ways, sometimes very religious ways, but still silly because they're really trusting in themselves or in other men in, in doing certain things or in saying certain things. But no, I'm going to trust in the Lord. Lord, heal me. And God has said that I will take that heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh, a tender heart that can be responsive to God, and that can now do what is right. We now have the tendency, the leaning, to love God and to keep his commandments, because the Spirit of God is within us. And so this is the beginning of Jeremiah's prayer, goes right back to the disease that can't be cured. Well, I'm going to ask God to heal me. Because if men can't cure it, then I'm down to one person to trust, and that is God. And oh, that my family, and oh, that my nation, that my people would see it as well. The condition of their heart, but they don't. And we're going to see the contrast between this one individual and all the rest of the nation here very shortly. But before we go any further, let the, the verse 9 asks a question at the end. Who can know the heart of men? And the answer, again, is tied to the solution. The answer is the Lord is the one who knows your heart. And again, the heart is the center of your will, of your choices. He knows what's going on there. He knows whether there is conflict going on there. 
He knows better than you do what's going on in there. Because your heart can even deceive yourself. Um, And that's how men can justify themselves. When they know they're doing wrong, and if they do it enough and do it enough, Romans tells us that their conscience will become seared. They will cut the edges, the corners off that jab them every time they do wrong. As they, because their heart is deceitful, it will trick them into believing that right is wrong and wrong is right. But God knows the heart. He has searched it out. He knows what's really going on in your choices. And then he does a second thing. The Lord tests the mind. And again, this translation, um, they're trying to help you connect to it. Um, If you pick up a Hebrew Bible, what it will say is the Lord tests your kidneys. And now that makes you kind of giggle a little bit. What's he doing with my kidneys? Uh, But to a Hebrew mind, the heart is the place of the will. Okay, The bowels right here are the center of your emotions. And that's why you get butterflies in your stomach whenever she walks by. Right? Or he. Come on, you know you feel it right here. This is where you feel your emotions. It's also where you get sick to your stomach. Oh man, I'm sick because I feel my feelings are here. So in the Hebrew mind, feelings are here. And guess what resides in your kidneys back here? Your conscience. They associate the kidneys with your conscience. Where you know right from wrong. You see how it's connected to your will? The Bible says the Lord knows your conscience. He put it there to convict you of your sin. He knows that you know that it's wrong. Whether you try to pass laws in the land to legalize it, you know, and he knows that you know that it's wrong. He knows your sin, and he knows your guilt. And guilt is a wonderful thing. It is the same wonderful thing as pain, and you would not want to be without pain. Because to be without the the ability to feel pain, you wouldn't know that something is wrong. And just if you had no feelings in your fingertips that you picked up something really hot to let go of it really fast, that pain tells you, you better stop because you're hurting yourself. That's pain and it is a good thing. I'm glad I have the ability to feel pain, don't you? Otherwise someone do things to you and you say, oh, oh, I just burned my fingers off. You know, I didn't feel it. Um, No, pain is a good thing. It is a benefit to us. We don't like the experience of it. Um, We want to avoid pain, but we recognize that it is a very helpful thing to keep us from doing injury to ourselves. And guilt in the spiritual realm is the same as pain in the physical realm. It is there for your benefit so that you can prevent injury to your spirit. And your conscience is the place. And God says, I know you know your sin, that you're guilty. And that's why one of the primary jobs of the Holy Spirit, because you have a deceitful heart that will trick you into calling sin good, oh no, and you'll actually be proud of it, you'll be proud of sin, and go around and have parades over it, um, and, and glory in sin. God comes in, and here's the first work of God in the life of every man. Here's the very first work of God in the life of every man. Are you ready for this? The, it's not the first breath you took. That's the work of your parents. Okay, The first work of God in every man's life is to convict you of your sin. That's right in the Bible. I didn't make that up. The Spirit comes, Jesus says, the Spirit comes to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Three things. That's the very first thing God does in your life is he convicts you of your sin. That, the way he does that is through your conscience, and he does that by producing guilt so you know something is wrong in you. Just like when I pick up that hot metal thing, and I go, wow, let go of that. that those pain, that sensory pain, tells me I'm doing something wrong that I have to stop. And my brain very quickly figures out what that is. got to let go of that thing that just caused all that pain. Guilt is the same way. It is the working of our conscience to communicate to us that we are in the wrong place, that we are destroying ourselves, and that 
We are in jeopardy. And this is the very first working of God. And so when it says that God searches out your heart, he knows the choices you're making. He knows them better than you do. He knows why you do what you do. And then he goes right down into your kidneys and he tests them. He tests them by pushing you to understand the guilt in your conscience that you know this is wrong. And that you are in a state of not just disharmony with God, but enmity. That is, you are an enemy of God. You are at odds with God. You are button heads with him. And again, what is the solution? The solution is, God, save me. I must recognize my error before you. I must, I must come to you to resolve something I can't fix because I can't make the guilt go away in a healthy manner. I need your healing. I need your salvation. And this is what God offers. And Jeremiah, on a personal level, receives that, even though everyone else around him rejects it. And this, let's jump down to verse 15 and see happening. Indeed, they say to me, where is the word of the Lord? Let it come now. This is the attitude of the they, and the they is the rest of Judah and Israel. Here's everyone else around Jeremiah. And they're chiding him. Jeremiah has already made a lot of prophetic utterances saying this is coming, this is coming, that God's judgment is coming. We're going to be destroyed as a nation. It's going to be a nation out of the north that's going to do it. And apparently at this point it had not come. And again, there's some chronology that's here and there. It, it, the chronology isn't important to Jeremiah, to Old Testament prophets, and even New Testament prophets. And so he's in a theme here. And he's saying, listen, I was preaching all this stuff just like you told me, and it And it was years before it happened. And during those years where Jeremiah kept preaching and kept preaching and kept preaching, the judgment of God is coming. You guys are doing hideous, evil things. And he's got to judge you and he will judge you. Now I'm not even going to tell you how he's going to judge you, where it's going to come from, what's going to happen. And the people didn't believe him. He said, oh, come on, let's see it. Where is it? You said it was going to happen. I don't see it happening. Where is it? What foolishness. Here God, through his prophet, gave Israel, Judah, an opportunity to repent by warning them something's coming. Remember the Ninevites? The little story of Jonah and the big fish that swallowed him and then spit him up on the shore. Remember that story? The Ninevites were warned by 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 Jonah Three days, just a few days, and God's going to destroy your city because of your wickedness. They didn't say, well, we'll wait for three days and see if that happens. No, because if they waited the three days, it would have happened. What was their response? To go to Jonah and say, oh, come on, where is it? Let's see it. Where's the word of the Lord? Let it come now. Let's see it happen. Then I'll believe. Oh, what foolishness. Jeremiah has already rehearsed for them do you not remember what God did already? Do you not remember what happened to Egypt? Do you not remember what happened to your forefathers in the desert? Do you not remember any of this? Don't you remember what God has done historically? Why would you tease him about the future? And so the people of Nineveh, they just, from the king right down to the cow, said, we're going to go into fasting and mourning and we're going to repent and we're going to turn and and we're going to beg God for his forgiveness. What a powerful and right response. Here, the people of God, the religious people who should have responded properly in their arrogance and in their trusting in man and themselves, and we'll see it extensively in chapter 18, um, their response to the prophet who says God's judgment is coming for sure. In the delay, instead of taking the delay as, I have an opportunity to get things right with God right now. And I can live for him for the little bit of time that there's left. And perhaps by doing so, I can, on at least on a personal level, avoid what is coming onto this nation. Onto this people. But instead of doing that, they chastise and ridicule the prophet of God. 
And people are doing that today. Oh, you think God's going to judge the world? Ha, oh, you're an idiot. Let it come. I'll believe it when I see it, is essentially what they're saying to Jeremiah. Where is the word of the Lord? Let it come now. Let's see it happen. You said it's going to happen. We don't see any evidence of it happening. And just a few years later, here come the Babylonians doing exactly what Jeremiah declared was going to happen. And these people, instead of taking hold of this little and, and they thought, you know, year, well, years and years is, is a big window of opportunity to repent. Yes, but uh, in the lifespan of a man, maybe. Um, but in terms of the working of God, um, they had this little window to respond. Because once the judgment came, there wasn't another chance. These people were destroyed. They were mowed down by the Babylonians, not just once, but three times. The Babylonians came in there and destroyed Jerusalem. They had this window of opportunity to avoid the judgment, and instead of laying hold of that and repenting and praying the prayer that Jeremiah prayed for himself, um, they instead ridiculed the prophet and said, oh yeah, I believe when it comes. Well, when it comes, it's too late because you're dead. And the time of choice is over. And so God was putting this guilt into their heart, into their mind, that they might respond properly. Instead, they resisted it, and they ridiculed the truth instead of humbly acknowledged it and turned and prayed the prayer of Jeremiah, Lord, heal me, and you'll be, I'll be healed. Save me, and I'll be saved. Because I have the same heart problem, the same disease everyone else has. They're ridiculing you, but I recognize your grace to give me this chance. And this is the offer today. There is a judgment coming. It is as sure as the presence of God, the existence of God. He has declared it in his word clearly. Remember I told you the first working of the Holy Spirit is to convict you of sin. The second one is to teach you about the righteousness of God. And the third thing, the third working of God in your life um, that... Uh, the, the first three things is to remind you that there's a judgment coming. Why does he do that? Because he's mean? No, because he loves you. And he's giving you a chance to fix this disease before this third thing. And this is what is being offered up to Judah, and they're rejecting and they're making fun of it. Well, when it all happens, that, maybe we'll see. Bring it on. We can handle it. And they're laughing at the declaration of Jeremiah saying the Babylonians are coming and you won't be able to stop them. The Egyptians can't stop them. There's no human way to stop them because they're God's agent. And their response was to laugh at it. Sound familiar? Oh, that's the way our society is today, isn't it? And society will be judged. The question isn't about society today. The question is about you. The prayer of the individual in verse 14 is, Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. The whole nation may have gone berserk and laugh at your proclamations and despise your offer to save them, but on an individual level, I am turning to you and trusting in you and I'm asking you and begging you to heal me and to save me knowing that if I do so, you promise to do exactly that for me and yet you can fix this heart problem. And so that offer is today. And it is for you. And we're not here to try to fix society. It can't be done. They're on a road to judgment that I don't know if there's many exit ramps for them left. But for the individual, there is still an opportunity today for you to receive Christ as your Savior. To recognize your heart's condition and to know that both your will, your choices, and your conscience, that both of those are etched with sin and guilt and the weight of all of that, and that nothing you go after in this world will 
resolve that, will heal that, and to turn to the one who can do the impossible, who is Jesus himself, who has done it for you, as we will look extensively at next week. And so this is the principle, the overriding principle, really, of this passage and the whole book. And that's why, this is, as I said last week, I've been really looking forward to this whole section. Um, in fact, this is the chapter that brought me to teach you and preach this book. Well, let's go to an illustration. Now that we got a handle on the principle, and I, don't, I could stop right now and call you to make a decision, and, and maybe I should, but i got 20 minutes at least, so um, I'm going to keep going. I want to share with you an example, because Jeremiah gives an example to the people. And it's an example that's going to hit you right in one of the main gods of our nation. Right in the wallet. Yep. Let's just take your money, for instance. Who do you trust with your money? Whose advice do you follow? Whose counsel is worth listening to? Because God has a lot to say in this category, and here, um, both in the in the principle of the in the um, wisdom section um, that's here that we're going to see in verses eleven, uh, twelve, and thirteen, we're going to see a contrast again between two individuals, two groups, um, are going to be ferreted out later in the chapter. So let's look at it very quickly. Uh, the principle is, is very clear that if you get your money dishonestly, um, it's not going to stay with you because you're not the rightful owner of it. And he uses this illustration from nature. And again, the translators give us the word partridge. It's probably referring to a, a type of grouse that does do this in Israel. Um, we use the word partridge that doesn't do it, but uh, it's probably a grouse that broods but does not hatch. That is, it sits on eggs that aren't its own. Now, I know that we all have the story in our, of the ugly duckling that actually turns into a swan um, and uh, that thinks it's a duck and then finds out it's a swan. But the fact is, is that when a grouse goes and sits on eggs that aren't its own, even to the point of hatching those eggs, and they'll do that, that once they are hatched, the chicks kind of attached to it as mother, and then they grow up and they figure out, that's not my mom at all, and they leave. And that's what it's saying about ill-gotten money. That if you're getting wealth that in an unrighteous way, it says that uh, you get riches, but not by right. That is, that uh, you didn't get it honestly. And so you want to get rich, but not honestly, not through hard work and good discipline and, and applying the principles of God's word. It says that those riches will leave him in the midst of his days, and at his end he will be a fool. And so you get these, this wealth dishonestly. It's kind of like that grouse that, that's sitting on somebody else's eggs, and the eggs hatch, and, and they realize this isn't our mom, and they take off. They don't stay in the nest, because they recognize that's not us. We don't, we're not the same. He says, so it is with the wealth that's dishonestly gained. You're going to lose that, and in the end, you're going to be the fool. So there's the example that he puts forward, that we think that somehow we can get ahead by doing things in an evil way because we trust in men. And we see that some people seem to get wealth that way. And yes, you can go steal and get wealthy. You can go sell drugs and get wealthy. Um, but the question is, is are you wise in the end? And the fact is that we can look into the realm of these people and we can see the average lifespan of criminals and we find that, boy, they don't live much past 28 why? Because their wealth leaves them, and they're a fool. They thought they could do it, and for a season, it's exciting, and, and it seems like everything's going well, and we might be scratched. How can they be getting ahead? But they're not. They're getting farther and farther behind. It's just catching them. And if we were smart enough to look at the statistics of those that are in communities that are high crime centers, and we find that it's all of this crime of, of 
property crime, a burglary and things and robbery and things like that, what you also find high in those communities is acts of violence against one another, and we find that their average lifespan drops dramatically. Yes, all the way down into the twenties. Average life span in some communities in this country. In the twenties. You're not expected to live into your thirties. Yeah, God's word is true. So there it is. There's the principle. Well, let's see it put forward. Let's see it thrown forward. And so he's going to select a law. And we get down to chapter, verse 19. And I know this is kind of jumping around a little bit, but I'm trying to take the principle and apply it to the illustration. So the principle was your heart is diseased, incurable, so you need to pray. Your conscience is full of guilt, so you need to ask the Lord to save you and trust in him and not reject him and ignore the judgment to come. Now the principle here is that God knows whether you are getting wealth in a righteous way or an unrighteous way, and he will hold you accountable for that. And within the law of Israel, the, and let's just go to the Ten Commandments. Within the Ten Commandments of Israel, there are several commandments that deal with the acquisition of wealth, but there is one particularly that is, of, that is early on in it. And yes, it, does, it says, thou shalt not steal, um, right? And, and you're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to covet. So we have some of those. But there is a prior one that is even more powerful, and that is, you will keep the Sabbath day holy. And in it, you will do no work. You may say, that's an economic one? Yes, that is an economic law. And so, having introduced this economic principle, that if you are getting rich in an unrighteous way, you are a fool, because it is going to go, get, go away from you in the midst of your days, and in the end, everyone's going to shrug at you. What a fool. Well, let's look at the principle in Judah in Jeremiah's day. Verse 19, thus says the Lord, go and stand in the gate of the children of the people, which of the kings of Judah come in, and by which they go out, and all the gates of Jerusalem, and you're going to yell to the most powerful, influential, and richest people in the nation. Those that are in power, the kings and the princes, and those who are, have wealth, and they, how do you know they have wealth? Because they are doing the exchange of goods for monies at the gates. The gates is where all the influential people are. This is where business is transacted. So he says, go to the gates of the city where all the business is transacted, and here's what I want you to do. Verse 21. Take heed to yourselves and bear no burden on the Sabbath day, nor bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem, nor carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath day, nor do any work, but hallow the Sabbath day as I commanded your fathers. Stop doing business on this day. Let's just test you. You've done a lot of horrific sin. You know, the idolatry, the, the immorality, the hideous sin. Um, but to tie to the principle of the gaining of wealth in an unrighteous manner, one of the ways that they were gaining wealth unrighteously was by doing business on the Sabbath which for Israel was Saturday, and, and they are forbidden to do that. But we find that in the gates of Jerusalem, here on the Sabbath day, all kinds of business is going on. And Jeremiah goes out there into the gates and declares, you need to stop this. And if you would just stop doing this, the Lord would bless us. Why? Well, is it just that one law they had to keep for the Lord to bless them? No. But if they repented in one area, that repentance would impact all their areas of their life. But the illustration from the wisdom literature is about your wealth. And so how is Israel gaining wealth unrighteously? By doing business on the Sabbath day. When God said you're supposed to be at home resting. You have six days to work and earn a living. Take one day and rest. That was the principle. But you see, men say, if I can make a living on six days, I can make a better living if I work seven days, right? 
Come on, why are all these businesses open in town today? Or yesterday, pick a day of the week. If you're in a Muslim country, they close on Fridays. Um, So pick a day. We know it's foolishness. The more they, more they, they clamor and grasp for it, the more it squeezes right out of their hands. And we have several companies in town, retailers, that prove the point, don't they? You guys know who's closed today, right? Chick-fil-A and Hobby Lobby. They seem to be doing all right, don't they? They seem to be doing fine six days a week. Historically, you go right back in through the town. I mean, there's even stuff recorded about the Oregon Trail, all those people that are going from, from there and trying to head out west. And some of them said, we got to get there as fast as possible. And so they wanted to travel seven days a week. And others said, no, we're just going to rest one day out of seven. And they rested and they got there first. Figure that one out. People travel seven days a week and end up having illnesses, having their animals break down, having all these problems. People who travel six days and rested a seventh got there safer, faster, and healthier. It's documented. So this is about business. This is about your wealth. And the world thinks, the man says that you should be doing business every minute of the day and every chance you get from morning to night, from during the night, um, we got to make money. And you make money by getting people to go shopping on their days off, and apparently um, other people can make money without that. And that was the situation in Jerusalem. This is an old problem. <laughs> this is an old problem. So this isn't just today in our capitalistic era. This was way back then. That was the same problem. They're all scrooges. They wanted to make money more than they wanted to have anything else in life. And God says, let's just test you in this one area. Go home and rest on the Sabbath. Go home and rest. Don't do business. Don't try to make a buck. Go home and rest. It's the Sabbath. And if you do that, I'll bless you. Promises of God are there. Now, your forefathers messed this up, and they got penalized, so you already have a history knowing that God is not pleased with those Sabbath breakers. So now you have that history to remind you that the judgment will certainly come, because it came then, it'll come now. And so, just... Keep the Sabbath, stop doing business and trying to get more money that isn't your right to have on this day, um, and just go home, rest, and I'll bless you. And I'll just look at the blessing and look at verse 25 and 26. Um, What's going to happen if you do that? Well, you're going to have kings and princesses sitting on the throne of David. They're going to have chariots and horses and and men of Judah and heaven and Jerusalem that say remain forever. They're going to come from the cities, from the places around Jerusalem and they're going to bring sacrifices and offerings and incense and sacrifice and praise. All you got to do is just, will you just surrender your business to my principles? Will you just surrender your finances to me? Will you just do right in one category as an illustration? And then God says, but if you don't, the last verse of chapter 17 if you don't listen to me, to hallow the Sabbath, as to keep it holy, to rest on it, such as not carrying a burden when entering the gates of the Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, that's the example. Don't be bringing goods in here to sell on this day. Then I will kindle a fire in these gates. The very gates that Jeremiah is yelling at and declaring this word, And it'll devour not just the gates, but the palaces, and it shall not be quenched. It's just going to keep burning and burning until this city is gone. And that's what happened. Because they didn't want to follow the principles of God's word. And so in the midst of their days, not only was their wealth gone, so was their very lives, and they were fools in the end. Because they thought to trust in man. Certainly, if you can make a good living six days a week, you can make a better one seven days a week. 
That's man's thinking, not God's. And so he takes this principle and he applies it. And what is the response of the people? Their response is to attack the messenger. And I want to take you back into some of the rest of Jeremiah's prayer. Because it gives a reflection of what's going on. Here's a man who is trusting the Lord. And he says, I'm going to keep shepherding. I'm going to keep being a shepherd of God. I'm going to keep saying the words of God. I'm going to not want to see people hurt. I want to see them helped. So I'm going to keep speaking the truth. And even though all of them oppose me, Lord, you record their opposition and you judge them double for it. Double why? Because not only did they reject your prophet and your truth, they rejected you. And because they had so much opportunity to hear the truth and rejected it and laughed at it, they're going to be judged double for it. Whoa. Now, we've just come cycled right back around. So now you're here today, and you've learned your heart's problem is a sin that can't be cured by man. You've been called to trust in the Lord. You found out now that all that guilt you've been carrying around is good for you because it tells you something's wrong. Now you have a chance to right it. And now, lo and behold, you are in even a deeper trouble because now you know the truth. And now your heart is about to be exposed. Will you reject what you've heard today or accept it? To reject it means that now you've not only just rejected God based upon because you have a sinful heart, you've rejected it even though you've heard the truth from a man of God. You've heard the truth and rejected it. And Jeremiah's prayer, do you see the end of it? Um, it says, let them be dismayed. Let them be put to shame, not me, because there my hope is in God. And we're going to see that back in the, we're going to close out back in the, in the wisdom section. It says, let them have the day of doom. Not that I want it on them, but if they don't respond to your truth, bring it on them, destroy them with double destruction. Why? Because they're ultimately already deserving of it, and now you've extended your mercy and grace to them. You've given them a chance to respond, and they've rejected you again. And now they're attacking your messenger. (laughs) Just, I don't want them, I, I don't want this to happen to them, but if, the, if that's all there is because they won't respond, then so be it. Let it land on them, Lord. But I want you to notice the heart of the prophet is, I didn't want this doom to come on them. And so we preach not to condemn people, we preach to save people. But in order to save them, they have to know that they need to be saved. They have to know the condition of their heart, and they have to be reminded of the guilt that they already know and is already there. If they will simply put some attention to it, they'll recognize, oh, all that guilt I'm carrying tells me, it's telling me I've got a problem. And the alcohol won't make the guilt go away. And the other drugs won't make the guilt go away. And the entertainment doesn't make the guilt go away. And, and even doing some good things every now and then doesn't make the guilt go away for the bad things I've done. There's only one solution, is Jesus Christ. And so the prophet doesn't want your doom, he wants your salvation. But if you reject the message... His prayer is, Lord, give them what they wanted. They want your destruction, so give it to them. Because they don't want your mercy. And this takes us to the last portion of this wisdom passage. And it's in verses 12 and 13 that I have not covered. It's the only passage I haven't really covered here. It says, a glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth or dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. There is a benefit to accepting Christ and there is a consequence to rejecting him. Do you see it? The benefit, look at it. It starts off with a benefit, then it goes to a consequence, it has another consequence and then a benefit. This is called the ABBA. 
You're learning so much about Hebrew poetry here, aren't you? This is the ABBA. A glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. Sanctuary, here's your place of deliverance. And God says, I want to bring you up into this glorious place with great authority to this high throne that has been established from the beginning of time. This is the place with me. I have a place of peace. I have a place of deliverance. I have a place of safety for you in my throne room on high. That's what I have for you. This is your sanctuary. This is your, your, your place of recovery. This is the place where your disease will never touch you ever again. This is your hope. He is your hope. Your only hope is Jesus Christ. You forsake that hope. All that is left for you is to be ashamed. And that's not just walking around going, oh, I'm so ashamed. Um, no, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Um, this shame is deep-seated all the way to the point of you have no hope of despair. And look at it, the, what he says was going to happen. He says, you reject God's offer he will write your name in the dirt. So you have a choice. You can either have your name written in the dirt or you can be drinking from the living waters in the sanctuary of God. There is a benefit of receiving him and there is, brethren, a consequence to rejecting him. When it says that you've been written in the dust, it means that you are now a temporary one. You have no claim on any of the promises of God. Your name is in the dirt. And it will go the way of the earth. Which is, according to Peter, will burn with fervent heat. The alternative is a sanctuary and living waters. He says, the Lord is the fountain of living waters. You're missing out on these benefits But it's not just that you're going to not get that. There are consequences. There is that deep shameness. And there is that destruction that is coming of having your name written in dirt instead of in the book of heaven, the book of life. You'll be written in the book of death. A very powerful passage of Scripture this morning with wisdom and its application, with a prayer, one man's response, and a society that ignored it all and was destroyed. And will it be repeated today? I hope so. Say, what? I hope that some will pray Jeremiah's prayer today. Say, nothing can heal this ache in my heart. Nothing can take away this guilt in my kidneys. (laughs) Only the Lord. Lord, heal me. Save me to your praise. That's the invitation today. And yes, I know that when you do that, you're going to be the minority in this society by far. Because trusting in the Lord is rare. Trusting in man is common. I invite you to be rare among men today and turn to the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you again for your word and its power and strength and we continue to rejoice in your offer. And not only the offer, but in your patience of delaying the judgment that's sure for this season to give us a chance to receive you, to accept your truth. And Lord, we see many around us that will ridicule it, who flaunt their sin and try to hide their guilt by glorying in evil. But Lord, we know it is wrong, and we know that it is that which separates us from you, and we know that that is that which requires your judgment.
So Lord, our prayer is that you might give us this message and continue to be a shepherd of your sheep to proclaim the truth that men might avoid that judgment to come. But Lord, should they reject your offer, make their judgment sure. And doubly so. And Lord, again, we do thank you for this truth today. And we pray that each one of us might be found leaving here trusting not in man, but in you. To your praise, with all the benefits that you have afforded us, to your glory. In Christ Jesus' name we pray, amen.